One of the things I like to do just to stay up on culture and to understand the, the world that I live in is read lots of articles. And so I'm constantly coming across all kinds of articles from all kinds of places. And recently, uh, the last couple of weeks, I read an article that seemed appropriate. Uh, it was in an April edition of the Harvard Business Review. And the article's title, you'll love it. It says, if humble people make the best leaders, why do we fall for charismatic nar- narcissists? Now, it opens saying that the research all says that when we choose humble, unassuming people as our leaders, the world around us becomes a better place. I don't think that's a surprise to us. Humble leaders, they create more collaborative environments where everybody feels like they can become sort of the best version of themselves. In those environments, we also find people who are trying to serve not just for self-recognition and acclaim, but also they want to see Others and the group do well together collectively. They're not thinking just individualistically. They're thinking about a group of people. Now, those following what they call superheroes, the the narcissists who have the really exciting charismatic personalities, uh, they tend to create environments where people become more self-centered and give rise to organizational narcissism. Uh, In other words, the whole group of people that they lead begin to imbibe their leadership. Margarita Mayo closes out this article saying this, the paradox is that we may then choose to support the very leaders who are less likely to bring success, or another way of looking at it, essentially, we have the leaders we deserve. Well, the same, I think, could be said of first century Judaism and the temple, which we're going to be talking about this morning. See, we're back in Mark's gospel with the amazing true story of Jesus in Mark 11, 1 to 25 that was just read. And here we see Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, traditionally celebrated on Palm Sunday. And so here we've been talking about how in Mark, the gospel, the first half, surrounds his Galilean ministry. Well, now the second half is moving him towards Jerusalem, where ultimately he will go to the cross. But today, today is where he enters the city of Jerusalem, and where he actually makes his first descent into the temple. Or maybe it should be ascent. Now it actually speaks, I believe here, more of his approach than his entry uh, and the triumphal entry. But here's the paradox, the great paradox that we're going to find in this text that I think is undergirding our understanding of it. See, the the Jews and their leaders, they too looked for a charismatic warrior king who would come and rescue them politically. That's what they wanted and what they felt they needed. But catch this, they needed something more than what they knew. They needed a humble king who could draw them near to God. That was their great need. And so this morning we're going to see that our humble king, Jesus fulfills what the temple anticipated as a focus and locus of worship. If you're taking notes, I would go ahead and write that down. That is this, that we see that our humble King Jesus, he fulfills what the temple anticipated as a focus and locus of worship. Uh, Now, first, we're going to see this in verses 1 to 11, where we find the humble Messiah's not so triumphal entry into the temple. Now, You'll notice in the text that we just read that it begins mentioning two places, Bethany. Uh, Bethany, of course, is the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, whom Jesus has just recently raised from the dead. And then you have Bethpage, uh, which is a, a word that actually means house of figs. That'll be important later. And they are on Mount of Olives, which is less than a mile east of Jerusalem. Uh, you can see it from the east gate of Jerusalem, though you can't go through that gate in the more, anymore. It's been closed up. Uh, but you can see it from there, the east gate, where, where we believe, it's told um, in, in many religions, uh, other than even Judaism or Christianity, believe that Jesus will enter from the east gate. And so from the east gate, you can see the Mount of Olives, the place where later his disciples would see him ascended to heaven to be with the Father. Now, Jesus in this text in verses 1 to 11, uh, you'll notice that he says in those first few verses uh, that the two disciples are called to go and find a colt that is tied on which no one has ever sat. And if anyone asks, why are you taking my donkey? You tell them this, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. 
Now, I don't know how you take that. It might be you think this is a, a picture of Jesus' sovereignty and saying that this is the way things are going to go about and this is exactly what will happen because I say so. Or it could be that you're having flashbacks of Star Wars and the Force and you think if somebody comes up to Jesus, I want you just to go up to them and say, you will give me your donkey. And they will give you your donkey. I don't think that's exactly what's happening, though. See, what it seems like is there is a prearranged password with this owner that he gives them, and then they give them the donkey. Now, when Jesus mounts this donkey, the crowd goes wild. I mean, did you see this? I mean, you would think that he was stepping onto a majestic battle steed uh, where they're about to ride off into victory because they start throwing down palm branches and their cloaks on the road, creating this red carpet type effect as Jesus is preparing to approach the city of Jerusalem. Uh, They are absolutely losing their minds. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, why is it that these people, I, I think they're probably... Uh, Galileans who have come with Jesus towards Jerusalem, pilgrims who have come because it's the Passover season, they're all showing up and emerging on Jerusalem together, and they are crying out for Jesus. Now, the question is, uh, notice what it is um, that they are crying out. Uh, We find in verses 8 to 10 that they're actually crying out Old Testament text. Uh, They love their Bibles. Now, what text is it that they are quoting in verses 8 to 10? Well, it's Psalm 118, 25 to 26. Psalm 118, 25 to 26. This is what they're saying as they're getting excited. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosea is a word that means save, we pray. Now, bring us salvation. Uh, And this psalm is actually what we would consider a messianic song, a a psalm that looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. And and so they're singing this psalm that anticipates this great David-like Messiah from the line of David who would come and save the people of God. And, And you can imagine why this would be appropriate in Jerusalem. I mean, their whole cultic system is surrounding this remembrance of how God delivered his people out of Israel and made them a people under his name. He redeemed them from slavery. And here they are approaching Jerusalem, rejoicing in that, remembering how in the past God had saved and delivered his people. But you might still be wondering why this flash mob breaks out celebrating Jesus. I mean, you've got the the choosing of a donkey, of a colt, And it signaled Jesus is the Messiah. Now, you say, well, why does a donkey uh, signal that the great awaited king has arrived? That doesn't make sense. Well, we find that in Zechariah 9, 9 to 10. See there, Zechariah prophesied of one who would come, this Messiah. And he says this, Zechariah 9, 9 to 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule, catch this, it shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the very ends of the earth. Now don't miss this. Jews witnessed a number of kings enter their city with power on majestic war steeds, white horses normally surrounded by hundreds of guards, sometimes a legion of guards displaying their power, the power that they had in their horses, the power they had in their spears, the power they had in their swords, the power they had in their names, the power they had in their horses, their chariots, their their mighty worldly power. And yet here, this great king enters in on a lowly donkey. Something seemed inappropriate. Maybe slightly. I mean, what a paradox. Deity comes in on a donkey. And he here symbolizes and recognize recognize that this is the Son of Man who is also the Son of God, ushering in endless authority with a shocking humility. And when God's son enters God's house in verse 11, it looks like more of an anti-climax than a climax. 
I mean, he enters Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and it says when he looked around at everything, just kind of looked around, he said it was already late and so he went back to Bethany to the twelve. Back over to the Mount of Olives, right? He walks in, kind of looks around, does a sort of, you know, Chevy Chase thing from Vegas Vacation where he looks over the Grand Canyon and he goes, all right, let's go, right? And you're like, seriously? Like the Messiah has showed up. You have been waiting for thousands of years for this man to come and to bring peace. And he's like, all right, we'll talk again tomorrow when everybody else is back. I mean, what a, a lacking ending to a triumphal uh, entrance, right? I mean, not at all what you expect for the Messiah showing up to the house of God. I think this is something we just need to notice really quickly. The humble Messiah enters the house of God and no one seems to notice. Jesus' first coming was marked by humility. Aren't you grateful that God didn't send us the leader that we deserve? Just think about this for a moment. I think that the reason that these folks were disappointed in a Savior who entered into a donkey was because they had other expectations and those other expectations that they had completely missed the point. See, if Jesus would have come on that white war horse speed while they were there, they shouldn't be excited, they should be scared because they were the enemy. That they did not understand that they were enemies and rebels of God. And the only hope that they had was that a God, but our God would actually stoop to them and help them in their need rather than coming in power to get rid of the enemies. We were the enemies. I mean, what a great picture of God stooping down to help us. I mean, here what we see is the, the lion-like king from the tribe of Judah that Genesis 49 prepares us for also became the sacrificial lamb that Isaiah spoke of who would lay down his life for you and for me. Brothers and sisters, that is exactly what we needed. We needed a, a lion who was willing to become a lamb for us. And he could have entered with a legion of angels and a majestic white warhorse, but he entered surrounded by sinners who needed more than freedom from Rome. They needed freedom from the shackles of sin, death, and the devil. And if Jesus came the first time on a warhorse, we would all be enemies of God on the wrong side of that war. But our king came on a donkey to lay down his life so that we might draw near to God by faith. Have you done that today? Have you drawn near to God by faith in the Savior who died for you? The king who had mercy on you, who came gently, not in power to destroy you. There's a great day that's coming, but he came to offer you grace while the day is still here. The day is here. Receive Christ by faith. Don't leave without doing that. But here what we find is this great Jesus came and made a way where there was no way by his cross. But there's a second thing that we see here. And this is where I believe that he's actually, Mark is actually building on the temple and helping us understand why Jesus was so unimpressed by the temple. And so we see three things here, I believe, that he uses to discuss the temple. First, a withered fig tree. Second, the temple itself, the barren temple. And third, a drowned mountain, this drowned mountain. Those are the three pictures that he gives to help describe and and help us understand the temple. And we see this in verses 12 to 23. Now, Why wasn't Jesus impressed with the temple? Well, I've shown you before how Mark likes to wrap text together. So he'll start talking about something. He'll talk about something else. And they'll come back to that thing he was talking about again, right? And the reason is, is because those things are kind of tied together like a sandwich. Well, I believe the fig tree, the temple, and the mountain in this text are all picturing the same thing. Uh, First, notice with me a withered fig tree in verses 12 to 14. And then 20 to 21, where he picks it back up. Now look with me in... In Mark 11, we're going to read this. We're going to look at this. Mark 11, beginning in verse 12, look to 14, and then we'll jump down to 20 to 21. Here's what it says. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a, a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now jump down to verse 20. Uh, Later, after Jesus goes and cleans out the, the temple, it says, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has 
withered. Now, as you look at these texts, it's interesting. Matthew, when he tells this story, he curses the tree and immediately it withers. But here we find Mark separating it, I think because he understands the tree to be commentary on the temple. Now, here's what I think is fascinating. Some, when they read this, they see this as a, a far step for Jesus from that picture of humility that we find all throughout the Bible. You've probably seen this before. People have looked at texts like this cursing of the tree and his cleaning out of the temple. And they're like, Jesus kind of has a temper, right? I mean, he gets angry. I don't know if he's exactly the the good moral man that people make him out to be. So they hear as they look at him cursing this temple, they say, you know, I think Jesus, he looks a little hangry, right? Like Joe Pesci, I don't know if you've seen those Snickers commercial where he's like with a college buddy and then, you know, Joe's kind of old and he's grumpy and he's grouchy and he's just like complaining. And all of a sudden his friend pulls him aside and he says, hey man, you're not quite yourself when you're hungry. You get angry when you get hungry. You need to take a bite of this, right? And he takes a bite and then all of a sudden like he changes back into a college kid and he's normal and like kind to people. Well, here people kind of look at this text, some commentators, and say, oh, well, I think Jesus here kind of was just angry and out of himself. It's not really a good picture of Jesus. You think I'm joking, but um, I could give you a number of of quotes about men who say this in their commentaries. Uh, One, a New Testament critic, T.W. Mason, says this of this story. He describes it as a story of miraculous power wasted in the interest of ill temper. Now, I obviously think Mason and others are missing something here about Jesus and what's going on. And I think we need to have a better answer than, no, he's not angry and hungry. I don't think that's exactly what we need to respond with. I think we need to be clear about what the Bible is trying to say. And see, Jesus doesn't tell the story to demonstrate a right attitude towards a frustrating gardening experience. That's not the point. See, here, uh, Jesus... Is, is telling us something more important. Now, if you're in Jerusalem, you, you get this. If you're a Jew, I think you get this. Fig trees dot the landscape of Jerusalem. You find fig trees and, and grapevines everywhere, all over the place. And so uh, you can see these trees that they grow somewhere between like 20 and 30 feet tall. They can get really big. And, and you'd be familiar with fig trees. You'd know when they grew fruit and when they didn't. You'd understand the leaves and the whole process. And anyone that would have heard this would have understood that it was a little bit strange because Jesus walks up to this tree at Passover. So we know it's like March or April. Everybody knew that fig trees didn't produce fruit in March or April. Uh, They weren't expected to. Uh, They wouldn't really produce fruit until uh, maybe May at the earliest. And so why would Jesus go up to this tree with like leaves and expect fruit to be in a place where fruit shouldn't be? Right? Well, it's not because Jesus wasn't a very good gardener. He was the best gardener. But here's the deal. I believe that he is using this tree as a picture So as you would go up to this tree, it would have lots of leaves in this season. And when you see a tree with lots of leaves, you expect to see something healthy and growing things like what? Fruit. And so he's saying that there really seems to be a disconnect between what the tree promises with these lush leaves and what you find, what you get there, which is no fruit. Anybody that didn't understand fig trees would be disappointed when they walked up looking for food. But catch this. Craig Evans, so in other words, outsiders would be the ones confused about not finding fruit, not the insiders who understood the trees. Craig Evans, a a commentator, says this, and I'm paraphrasing, this fig tree symbolized Israel's golden age and the properly functioning temple practices. See, Jesus here, I believe he looks like an Old Testament prophet in the way that he is uh, functioning. And he talks a lot like Jeremiah who compared the abomination of the temple and its leaders because they were faithless. In Jeremiah 8.13, he says uh, they're comparing them to a fruitless fig tree who he came up to looking for sweet fruit, but instead he says there were no figs on the fig tree. Jeremiah says even the leaves were withered. Therefore, the Lord God has doomed us to perish because we have sinned against the Lord. Now, if the temple is the fig tree and Jesus has just cursed a fig tree and said the leaves are going to wither, what does that signal about the future of the temple? Sounds pretty ominous, doesn't it? 
So Jesus uses the fig tree as a prop to explain the actions that are about to take place in the temple. Now, not only do we have this, we have this tree, we have a barren temple in verses 15 to 19. Look there with me at what Jesus does whenever he goes into the temple. Here's what it says. It says, And they came to Jerusalem, and entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold, and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the the tables of the money changers, and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So here Jesus is likely in the outer courts. There were three sections to the temple. The outer courts were where the Gentiles could go. And there he is. He walks in on this day in the morning. And as it looks out, it it looks, I'm guessing, like the crowd here from what he describes is actually largely Jewish, not Gentile. And Josephus, now we know he embellishes a lot, Josephus, but here's how busy it would have been during Passover. He says that around 66 AD, there was something like 2.7 million people who all came upon Jerusalem, which would have uh, completely flooded the city with people. That's why people were having to stay outside of Jerusalem to be able to take part in Passover. And only that, they offered something like 255,000 lambs, which were sacrificed. Now, if you have ever been to Jerusalem, uh, the temple is up on a mount, and then there's a, a Kidron Valley that goes next to it on the east, and then you have the Mount of Olives. And if you can imagine 255,000 animals being slaughtered for sacrifices to God, I believe that whole Kidron Valley would have filled with blood from the sacrifices that were being offered to God. That very valley that Jesus would have crossed over to enter into the temple of God where He would become God's chief sacrifice for sinners. The ultimate sacrifice that all sacrifices pointed towards. See, travelers, when they were going to make these sacrifices, they didn't want to carry their sacrifice all the way. So vendors set up, would set up shop, and they would have sacrifices locally that they could come into the courts and they could buy. Now the problem with this is uh, they had all kinds of ways that they could take advantage of those pilgrims who were traveling in to worship God. Mark and Matthew, it's interesting, they merely mention uh, pigeon sacrifices, not the others. And those were the sacrifices that were really for the poor. And I think the reason that they mention these and not the others that John mentions is because they want to emphasize the fact that there was a heartlessness about the way that these profiteers were taking advantage of others in this temple system for financial gain. Even the poor they had no mercy on. They were happy to take their money and to deprive them and to defraud them. Now, there were a couple of ways that they could price gouge uh, these folks. One is, uh, when they would go to get the lamb, they could easily uh, inflate the price of this sacrificial animal. Because here they are. How are they going to go back home, take days and days of journey to get back home to get a sacrificial animal because the price isn't good? They couldn't. And so they're really uh, at the mercy of these folks who set up booths. Uh, Not only that, not only could they raise the price ten times for that, there was also the exchange rate. So you couldn't just use a normal dollar, a normal coin that you would have from Rome, because it had an image to the Caesar, which was um, basically praising him as a god. And so they would have to exchange it for a Tyrian coin, a Tyrian coin, which was a coin they could use to buy the sacrifices. So not only did they raise the price, they also took advantage of the exchange, and people were completely getting ripped off in the temple. And Jesus enters seeing this. And he throws over the tables. He runs buyer and seller alike out and prevents anyone from carrying anything through. See, John even pictures Jesus uh, taking a whip and creating a stampede of sheep and cattle out of the temple with his anger. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all explain this with a quote from Isaiah 56.7. And here's what he says. My house shall be called a house of prayer. All three synoptic gospels quote that. Here's what I find interesting here. Mark finishes it off in a way that they don't. 
He says, not only shall my house be called a house of prayer, but also for all nations. You know, others have left that out, but Mark makes sure that gets in. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Of course, the temple was considered to be the house of God, representing God dwelling with his people. And who should you be paying attention to in God's house? Who, who should you be paying attention to? God, right? And prayer is, is really just a man or woman speaking to God, giving him the attention he deserves. But they've been so distracted from God and God's house, and they've been using it for profit, not prayer. Now, why does Jesus curse the fig tree and clear the temple? Don't miss this. I believe that Jesus here even more is actually deliberately fulfilling Zechariah 14.21's prophecy. He promises there, Zechariah, that there would come an eschatological end times judgment on the leaders of Israel, both political and religious. And there Zechariah says this, And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. So that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord. No longer a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. See, the chief priest and the scribes understood the unprecedented authority that Jesus claimed here. And verse 18 says they heard it. They heard this authority and they were actually, we're told in Mark eleven eighteen, they sought a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Let me just ask you, uh, ask you something. I think we see a, a few things here. And I want you to think about this text for a minute and how it applies to your life. One thing that I think we see clearly here is that God's house has always been about has always been about prayer, not profit. It is about meeting with God. And the first way that you know that you've moved away from God is your prayer life. That's one of the quickest and easiest ways to know. I'm not saying it's the first way that like actually hits your radar, but one of the quickest and easiest ways to know how you're doing spiritually is: Am I talking to God? Because God's people talk to God. It's a relationship. We listen to Him through His Word. We pray to Him through our prayers. God's people pray. They speak to God. And we model that uh, each week here as a church. You know, we, we each week have um, a number of prayers in the service. One is a pastoral prayer. And as I, I pray a pastoral prayer, we are actually praying together as a congregation, speaking out to God together as a people. We are lifting our voices in unison to God through the representative leader. And what that says to us is, and what we are saying to one another is, we are a people who speak to God. We are a people who are motivated by engaging God. Now, if you're here and you're thinking to yourself, man, I don't know how to pray. One great way to learn how to pray is just listen to the pastoral prayers. In fact, I've had a number of people ask me before, like, I've noticed y'all do pastoral prayers. I've never heard so much praying in a church before. And I'm like, guilty. Um, I don't have a problem praying while I'm in church. I think that's a great thing. But they ask us, you know, well, well, why do you do that? And I'm like, well, can you tell me about the kind of things that we pray for? And like, yeah, you always usually pray to God for something that you like, usually confess sin, and then you, you talk about Jesus and what He means for us. Uh, I notice you a lot of times pray for, like, government, you pray for other churches, you pray for specific needs of other Christians. Um, you, you sort of pray for those things. And I'm like, yeah, so basically, you know how to go and tell somebody else how to pray now, right? And I'm like, yeah, that's right. One of the things that we do in our pastoral prayers is model. We try to model for you how to pray. So if you're a new Christian and you're wondering, what does it look like to pray? I didn't have a, a Christian mom or a Christian dad. I don't know what that's supposed to look like. Just listen to the pastoral prayers, and it's a great model of what your prayer life can look like throughout the week when you're praying to God. We need to be a people of prayer. That's what God's people do. I think we also see here in these verses that we, we need to recognize that we know we've lost sight of God when we look at what we can get out of people rather than what we can put into people. You know, cruciform love. That's a a Christ-shaped love is sacrificial. It is a a giving of yourself. Jesus did not come on a donkey in humility because He had something that He needed from you and from me. He was not lacking in love. He was not in any way lacking in money or tribute or fanfare. 
He had legions of angels in heaven singing His praises from eternity's past. He had the the divine accompaniment of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, They are not lacking in their ability to love. He was full of love when He came down. Sacrificial love is a love that sacrifices itself. Sacrificial love for you and me is a love that sacrifices itself because we have experienced infinite love in Christ. We love with the very affections of Christ when we love others. We're not loving because we need anything. We love because we've been given everything. Brothers and sisters, that's what you've been called to, that kind of love. And we need to check ourselves. We need to check ourselves. We need to do an inventory about the way that we are loving those people that God has placed in our lives. How are you loving your spouse, your husband, your wife? How are you loving your children? Would you characterize it as sacrificial? How are you loving those folks who you have covenanted together with at Trinity Bible Church? Are you loving in a sacrificial way? What about the way that you are loving your non-Christian friends? Do they look at you and say that your love can be explained by the things of this world and worldly pursuits? Or would they say that your love is characterized by an otherworldly kind of sacrifice that points to Jesus? See, we should be known as a people who are not using people for what we can get out of self-interest. But we want to be known for seeking to serve God and others. That's what the people of God look like. You know, the, New Te- the New Testament teaches that the local church is actually the place where Christians are called to live out those 60 one another's of the New Testament. Now, we find that so many people choose Churches based on how it feels. And I I don't think that that's really what the Bible teaches. In fact, uh, that feeling that usually drives our choice of a church is usually more characterized as comfort than it is self-sacrifice. I've seen so many people in my short time in Phoenix. I've been here for seven and a half years. I have friends, acquaintances, people that I know that have been through four to five churches in seven and a half years. And I wish I could say that's abnormal, but that's a story I hear all the time. And here's what happens, I believe. I believe when you go, there's endorphins that kick in with new stuff, and it feels good, it feels like Jesus. And then you're there just long enough for people to get to know you. And they recognize that you're actually a sinner, and then you realize they're sinners. And then you realize sinners are everywhere, and you get really scared and you run. Brothers and sisters, what the Bible says about the local church and what it ought to look like is almost that the more that we're called to sacrifice for others, the more that it feels like Jesus. The more that we humbly look to serve others, the more that it smells like Christ's love rather than the love of the world. I'm not saying that there aren't reasons to leave a church. You know, the theology matters. A faithfulness to theology matters. But are we making our decisions based on the things that matter to God or the things that matter to our own selfish self-interest. We need to be concerned about what God's concerned about. We want to be known as a people who sacrifice ourselves for others. See, the unique value of the temple was for people to meet with God in God's house, which now the local church is where God dwells with His people. But they were using the temple to turn profit. Did you catch it? They're, They're too concerned with self-interest, not self-sacrifice. I want us to be known as a people who are sacrificial. And I love that I sense that we are a people who are sacrificing ourselves in ways that just blow me away. And I just think about all of the hours that Natalie and Lynn and others just spent for SAF to share the gospel with kids. And that delights my soul. I hear stories about folks running with meals the day that somebody finds out they've lost a family member to have it at their doorstep to meet them and encourage them. And it delights my soul. And brothers and sisters, if you're thinking to yourself, man, I haven't been loved like that. Well, the answer isn't to get sad and run. It's to press in and love others in the way that you desire to be loved. Be the friend that you want to have. That's what God's called us to. And also, I think we see here clearly by way of application, a third thing that's really important. A third thing that you might miss if you skip Mark and you don't read his gospel and see how he finishes out Isaiah. Did you notice that in his text, he's very clear in saying that Jesus says the house of God should be a house of prayer for who? For all nations. Did you know that in the Bible, this is a Greek, this is a Greek trick. All means all. Okay. Is that complicated? 
I feel like I've lost some of you. All means all. Isn't that great? Very simple, very profound. Do you know that Did you know that whites will become the minority majority by 2050 in our country? That means that when people take a survey, there will be more people that check other than white when they turn in their survey. More folks will do that in our country by 2050. Now that's not why we ought to desire a diverse church though. I hear some pastors talk about that and they're like, oh, it's just good business procedure for us to become more diverse. I'm like, that's a horrible idea. When we want to become diverse, it's not a business decision, it's a gospel decision, right? It pictures the gospel. It's because all means all when God says all people. God calls local churches the house of God. Now, where His Spirit resides with His people, that is the people of God and the house of God, both individually and collectively. And we are an outpost of heaven. We're catching us. We're told in the final day, when we are with Christ, when He returns for us, that every tribe, tongue, and nation will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Don't you want a foretaste of that now? I do. I love to see diverse people gathered around, unified in Christ. Not here because we all like the same football team. You ought to like the saints. But because, because we have the same Savior, Jesus. Right? Like it shows. It shows off the power of the gospel. So let me encourage you. Let me encourage you so that we look more like heaven. To make friends with people who are different than you. And that might be different ethnically. Could be socially. Or it might even be economically, financially. You're different than these people. Find people that are different than you. And look to spend time with them. To love them sacrificially. Look to disciple someone who is different than you. Look to be discipled by someone who is different than you. I'm not saying you can do all of these things. But these are ways that you can continue to seek to bring diverse people to Christ. Seek to understand those who are different than you. Brothers and sisters, I want to show off the power of the gospel in the way that Ephesians 3.10 speaks of it. Where Paul says that the gospel came in and obliterated that wall of hostility that separated Jew and Gentile, different nationalities, in such a way that it displayed the power of God to create one new people, one new man. And it had such a profound effect that he says it became such a bright display of the power of God that even angels and demons testify to its glory. And as they look to it, they are spellbound. They are dumbstruck by the fact that God has done this amongst the people. Brothers and sisters, we ought to desire and long to see God move in this kind of way amongst us. Diversity shows off the power of the gospel. I still remember a story I've told you before about a Harvard sociologist who showed up to Capitol Hill Baptist Church, a church I interned in at. And when he showed up, he showed up, he heard the preaching, he stayed after the service, and that was what caught him and struck him. See, he had studied what people relate his whole life. And he was pretty good at it. He was teaching at Harvard. And he says that basically... Uh, it wasn't the preaching that caught him at first. It was the way that after the service, people, and this church has people from like, you know, 50 to 100 nations represented. It's in D.C. on the hill. And as they're loving one another, talking, enjoying one another, he's sitting there going, all of my life's research that I've given my life to says it should not be taking place. There must be something different that's going on here. And so he stayed. And as he stayed, he wanted to listen to the gospel that, that created this kind of community. And it was through that testimony that he eventually came to faith in Christ. He said, all of my learning has not, has not shown me how this can take place. Only the gospel can explain it. See, the power of the gospel on display and the love of the community compelled him to listen closer to the gospel and become a believer. Don't you want us to more and more become that kind of place? See, the humility required to be this kind of community only comes when you understand that the focus and locus of worship is a person and not a place. It's a person and not a place. Third image he gives us is this, this drowned mountain in verses 20 to 25. This drowned mountain. So you think about this. Jesus and the disciples double back past the fig tree and Jesus cursed and drew attention, his disciples drew attention to the fact that its leaves have withered in verses 20 to 21. And before Jesus responds in 22 to 23, 
he starts talking about, in response to this withered tree, this mountain and prayer. So what's this text been talking about again so far? The temple, right? And what is the temple supposed to be? The house of prayer. And what has Jesus said about the temple? That judgment is coming. So if judgment comes on the temple, where will the people of God meet with God? I mean, do you you see the problem? The temple is where the locus and focus of worship is. If it's gone, what do we do? Well, let's look at those verses again in verses 20 to 22 and see what he says. 20 to 23 and see what he says. This is what he says. I'm going to jump down to 22. It says, Jesus answered them about this withered tree. Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. So here, we see a destroyed fig tree. Now, why? It's not because it was a cold night. It's because of the effective word of Jesus saying that it would wither. But next, he condemned the temple for losing sight of God in prayer. And he says, we see the temple in the fig tree. But notice here, he turns back to the fig tree withering here before telling the crowd, have faith in God. I want to redirect your focus. You're thinking about the temple, have faith in God. And then in verse 23, he says, truly, I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain be taken up and drown, uh, thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now some have taken this simply to say, this is speaking of the power of prayer. So maybe we should go to Nepal and look at Mount Everest and pray to have Mount Everest moved. And if it doesn't, it must be because we have a deficient faith. Uh, I don't think that's true. And maybe you want to start with an anthill, Right. Got to work your way up with these things. But I do believe in the power of prayer. Because Jesus intercedes with us to the God of glory. He is the Son of God, and the God the the Father listens to the Son. But Paul says God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So we believe that power, prayer is power from other places as it does here. But I don't think that here... Mount Everest is in mind. See, see, notice that Jesus isn't speaking to a mountain or any mountain. He's speaking to this mountain. He's speaking of a specific mountain. Now, this could be the Mount of Olives. But in context, I think he probably stays on point and is talking about the Temple Mount, which Jesus has just condemned. Now, just to get to the point, commentator Stanley Porter writes of this mountain here, and he says this. He says it is a symbol of the temple mountain and its removal into the sea is a symbolic image signifying the utter destruction of the temple. So he says implicitly here what he will say explicitly later in Mark 13 2, where he's looking at the temple and Jesus says there will be left not one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So if the temple is gone, how will people draw near to God? Did you know that Jesus says in John that he will tear down the temple and build it back up again in three days. See, the temple, its priesthood, its sacrifices, they were all only road signs that were actually pointing towards Jesus Christ. And Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that the temple anticipated. And Jesus would be raised up. His Father Himself would raise Him up from the dead as the new focus of meeting with God. The old temple where you met with God, it will be taken away. And instead, you will have Christ to the temple pointed towards, the fulfillment of it. And you will be able to draw near to God with the kind of intimacy that the temple could never provide for. The temple never made anyone a son or an heir. It is the Son who does that by the covenant of His blood. So the temple, its priesthood and sacrifices, they were only road signs pointing to Jesus, who is the ultimate focus and locus of worship. And God's house is actually now local churches of believers who have faith and pray to God collectively. In fact, I think that's what we see in verses 24 to 25. You'll notice that he closes talking about prayer, but he's talking to you all, not just you. Third, our last point is this, where we look at this. Jesus fulfills the temple and God dwells with his people in the local church. Here's what it says. Therefore, I tell you, 
Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you and your trespasses. See, with the temple gone, Jesus points to how we meet with God. It is through faith and a community with other believers who have the Spirit of God. And this will be fleshed out later in the New Testament. We'll see more. But notice that here, all of the yous in the text are plural. So this speaks of a praying community who is forgiving one another. And we show the mercy to others that God has shown us in Christ. That's how God's people are known. A merciful, forgiven people who have experienced the mercy and forgiveness of God in Jesus. So what are some takeaways from this as we close out? First, if you're a non-Christian... Let me encourage you to do what Jesus encouraged the disciples to do. Have faith in God. That's what God would call you to today. Have faith in God. And the only way to do that is by accepting God's Son as your King. See, there are not many ways to heaven according to the Bible. There is one. Turning from living for sin or from any other God or gods that you're living for to living exclusively for Jesus Christ. Living for Him, making Him King of your life, Lord of your life. Trusting that He died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead to declare that if you put your faith in Him, you will be forgiven and become a child of God. Let me just encourage you today. Turn from running after the self-centered pursuits to loving Jesus who died for your sin and was raised from the dead. He died to bring you near to God. So if you're here this morning and you're feeling far from God, I would love to talk to you about that, how you can draw near to Him in Christ. Don't leave without talking to me or or one of the other uh, folks in this room. We would love to share Christ with you. But maybe you're here and you're a Christian without a church. And you're looking for a church. Uh, Let me just encourage you to look for a couple of things. If you're looking for a healthy church, find a church who preaches expositional sermons. They preach, they like actually, I know this is kind of a new thing in the church today, but like they actually bring this out the Bible. This is a Bible. You don't see this in a lot of churches, but it's a Bible. Uh, This is the Word of God. We believe this is actually God's words. We find ourselves um, compelled by God's Word to submit to God's Word. And and you need to find a church that does that. One good way to see if people really do take the Bible seriously is do they preach through whole books of the Bible? Or are they actually reading the whole Bible, going through book by book, verse by verse, explaining the Word of God like we did today? Why do we do it that way? Well, it's because we think that God has better stuff to say than we do. And we believe that we need, most of all, to hear from God Himself. That is the voice that we need to hear above all else. Week in and week out, we gather here to hear from God. Find a church that does that. There there are other churches that do that. I'd love to help you find one. Look for someone who preaches expositionally. And also make sure that the point of every exposition of the text, the highlight of the sermon, is where Jesus Christ Himself is exalted. We are people who are about the book, and we are people who are about the Lamb, Jesus Christ, who is both the Lion and the Lamb. He is our Savior and our King. Uh, You need a church that talks a lot about Christ. And not just Christ as a good example, but Christ as the one who came and died on the cross for us. Find a church that speaks a lot about that, that points to the hope of the resurrection. But not only that, you can find a lot of churches like that, but find a church that desires, longs for, and seeks to be characterized by mercy and humility like Jesus. You know, not just has a lot of Bible knowledge, not just knows a lot about Jesus, but really smells like a merciful and humble church. That's, that's really what the Bible says that we ought to seem like, but we ought to be like if we actually are taking the Bible seriously. See, the Bible says, friend, if you are not a member of a church, that you need to be under the authority of spiritual leaders called elders. You need that. It's good for your life. Jesus' word, it says that. So do not put yourself under elders in a local church and accept their leadership is bad for your soul. It's dangerous. I might be the only person that's ever told you that. But it is dangerous for your soul not to fall under the godly leadership of elders who lead in this way, who are transparent and caring. Let me also say this. If if you're a lady and you have a man that you're interested in and he is not under the authority of elders, if he has not placed himself in healthy relationship in a local church where he is submitting to leadership, uh, don't, don't take that relationship any further until he's willing to do that. See, you need a man who is willing to submit to elders who submit to Jesus. 
It's good for your soul. I've had too many women come to me asking for help in their marriage, and we were powerless as elders because that man had not submitted to our leadership, and so we had no voice in his life. It's good for you to have men who have submitted to the leadership of a local church to the glory of God. Christian leaders. Christian leaders. Uh, If you are a layman, you are still a Christian leader if you love Jesus and you're a leadership position in the world. And you need to reflect the character of God in the way that you lead your organization. Now, I am not here to tell you about best business practices. Um, I am, I mean, I am not a wealthy man. Uh, (laughs) I don't have best business practices advice for you. But what I can tell you is that if you are a child of God, then you are called to reflect the character of your Heavenly Father. And that means that there is nowhere that you go in whatever business practice that you're in, that you aren't called to reflect the character of God and the way that you treat those people who are under you. You should reflect a humble attitude, a graciousness, a a kind of personality that is sacrificial rather than self-seeking. Your employees need to see that, not because it's going to make you more money, but because it honors your Father in heaven. If you are a dad or a mom who has been trusted with authority, you know, much like the, the leaders of Israel who turned people away from God, we are called to turn our kids towards God. So let me just ask you a quick inventory to see whether or not you're exercising leadership in godly ways. Ask yourself, do the people who are working for you see you working hard and laying down your life for others? Do your kids see you sacrifice your desires for the good of others? Do you seek to use authority God has given you to serve or to be served? Do your husbands or wives see that? See, our elders here, we we desire to be happy, humble leaders. That's what we would like to do. We want to be transparent about our weaknesses as we humbly um, huddle under the cross of Christ to revel in His resurrection. You need leadership like that. And we want to be more and more leadership like that. Because catch this, we are never the heroes of our story. It is always Jesus and our children and our workers and our co-workers and our spouses. They need to know that Christ is a hero of our lives. Finally, church members, so many of you lay down your lives for others daily. And I want to, to continue to encourage you, keep pressing in faithfully. Don't kill yourself, but continue to work hard for the glory of God, knowing that you are laying down your life as Christ does. Don't turn away from Him for the resources that you need to be faithful to Him daily. Be faithful and trust God for the fruit, even when you don't see it. Let's pray.